You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 27th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, as the estimated 220 people kidnapped from Israel approach three weeks in Gaza, we speak to one of the world's leading hostage negotiators as a Hamas delegation travels to Moscow. Any nation out there that wants to be involved should look for ways to be involved to help Israel defend itself and to help get humanitarian assistance in. So we'll see what comes of the conversation. We'll get the latest from the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, plus the latest business news, and we take a look at what to watch this weekend. Don't sit there! Those are Christian Lacroix pillows. So we can't sit on the couch. Not in jeans. (laughs) Will the return of Fraser make the list? All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. Well, tomorrow marks three weeks since Hamas's attack on Israel when an estimated 220 people were kidnapped and taken to Gaza. Today, a delegation from Hamas will travel to Moscow for talks on the hostages. Though a handful have been released, little is known about the fate of others. Negotiations are complicated by the fact that more than half of the hostages have foreign passports from 25 different countries. Rachel Briggs, CEO of the Clarity Factory and one of the leading experts on hostage-taking, joins us now. Uh, Rachel, thank you for joining us. What's the latest on this hostage situation? Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, so, as as you said in your introduction, uh, we know that there are more than 200 hostages currently being held in Gaza. Um, so far, two Americans have been released, two elderly Israeli women uh, were, were released. Um, and we have heard rumours um, at various different points over the last week or so of um, much many more hostages being released, but that hasn't come to fruition um, as yet. But the fact that we've seen releases so far in, you know, so early in, 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 in this hostage case, I think should give us hope that negotiations are continuing and that progress is being made. Is it quite unusual for the hostages to come from so many different nations, including around a quarter thought to be from Thailand, who are agricultural workers? It is unusual. I mean, it's not unheard of um, for hostages to come from different nationalities within the same group um, being held. But obviously, the number that have been taken and the number of different nationalities that have been taken, um, that that is that is unusual. And the fact that there are different types of countries, as you said, everybody from um, Thai agricultural workers, we know there are some Nepalese there, through to um, Americans, uh, Brits and um, French. So it's not it's not sort of unheard of to have multinationals um, involved but this is certainly one of the largest um, groupings I've I've seen in, in my time. And how will that impact negotiations because you could have you know Hamas being slightly overwhelmed say by different countries all trying to make contact and negotiate will these countries be sort of coordinating together or are they all just trying to do their own thing? Well it certainly makes things a lot more complicated um, because 
But the challenge that you have is, is not just that there are lots of voices around the table and for sure there will be intense efforts to, to coordinate and to, to ensure that Hamas can't sort of pick pick countries off from one another and, and sort of cause divisions among them. But the, the other fact is that um, different countries have different approaches to negotiations. So some are willing to negotiate with terrorists, some are not, some are willing to concede with terrorists, others are not. Um, and some countries like the US and, and the UK and others have um, more to bring to the table because they um, also have wider uh, sort of influence and an interest within within the Middle East and within um, those um, countries and partners that are allied with with Hamas. So it's it's not an even playing field. And with the delay and slight dithering by the Israeli government on going into uh, Gaza, there has been an attempt by the families successfully, we'd say, uh, to sort of raise the profile of these hostages in in the collective consciousness about the idea of going in being, uh, you know, damaging to the prospects of getting them back. Uh, Do you think the families have done well in their campaign on this? I think they've done remarkably well. I mean, what often um, families are advised in hostage cases traditionally is, you know, say nothing, stay quiet. And the rationale for that is because until you know who's got your loved one, um, what their interests are, what they're trying to get out of it, you know, you can't go unpublic once you've gone public. But of course, um, the, the the status of this case is entirely different from most other hostage cases. And the families have made a very sensible calculation, which is that it's important to keep their, their loved ones' uh, images out there, names out there, because this isn't just a hostage case. This is a conflict as well. And I think they've done a brilliant job of um, raising the the profile of the hostages so that they take priority over um, the other um, sort of issues that are going on uh, between Israel and, and Hamas. So hopefully that can hold for for longer. The release of hostages so far does show that um, there is the promise of getting more out. But I mean, hats off to the families; they've done a fantastic job while they're also trying to obviously deal with um, quite a lot um, on their mm. plates as well. And if you walk around the streets of London at the moment, you see sort of kidnapped posters everywhere, sort of profiling all the different people that were taken. What do you think of the prospects for bringing them home now? You know, I will always say that you have to maintain hope in these in these kind of situations. Um, I, I'm realistic that, you know, they are in a perilous situation, not least because they're in the middle of a war zone um, and Israel is is keen to get in there and and sort of finish the job with with Hamas, as, as we know. Um, but you have to maintain hope. The fact that we have seen two sets of releases already, the fact that we have seen rumour after rumour of, of larger releases, which haven't unfortunately yet come come to fruition. Um, and I, you know, I, I would imagine that behind the scenes there is tremendous pressure on Israel to hold back. So um, I, I think it's really important that we that we maintain hope and that we don't um, sort of assume that the, this is all over because it's far from over. What did you make of that footage earlier in the week of one of those hostages that has been released, uh, Jokovid Lipschitz, an 85-year-old woman, uh, turning around and shaking the hand of the captor? I mean, what will that do in terms of how things progress? Do you think that that was sort of a very good image to, to put out in terms of the situation? Well, I mean, I've been working on these cases for about 25 years, and I, I always say that they show you both the worst of humanity, i.e. hostage takers, and also the best of humanity. And I think she was a, a very good example of the best of humanity to come out of that situation and have the poise and the grace and the dignity and the kindness of heart 
to extend her hand to somebody who had put her through unimaginable terror, I think probably speaks volumes to her. She will also have been making a calculation that her husband, of course, remains in captivity as to 200 others. So um, I, I think we need to interpret it, I suspect, on the basis of which it was done, which was a, a kind woman um, who has you know, had enough of all of this conflict and, um, as I understand it, has dedicated her life to, to the peace process, mm. um, g- giving us all a lesson in, in the power of dignity and grace and, and kindness um, when those things don't seem to be um, too too common on the ground at the moment. Yeah, given uh, yeah before the uh, they were abducted, the couple, her and her husband, just to drive people from Gaza to hospitals in Israel for for treatment. Um, and, and just finally, uh, if these hostages or the, the vast majority of them, hopefully, are brought home, it can be quite a long road to recovery, can't it? It's a it's a slow process. As a friend of uh, and mentor of mine, Terry Waite, who was held for five years in uh, Beirut in the late eighties and early nineties, always says to me, you know, he likens the process of of coming home from captivity as uh, like that of a deep sea diver coming back up to the surface. You don't rush up. You have to take your time slowly. You've got to stop several times and. Um, you know, to to rush too quickly is is can be quite dangerous, and it's it's similar in this case. You know, they they will certainly need some medical attention as soon as they come out. Um, they have been through a tremendously traumatic experience, both in terms of how they were taken and the conditions under which um, they're being held. So it's really important they get psychological assistance, and and it bears um, reinforcing the fact that there are children, as we understand, who who are currently being held and. Um, you know, all of our attention must be on making sure that those children, when they are released, get the care, support, not just over the short term, but the long term, to make sure that this ordeal isn't something that um, they bear scars for for the rest of their lives. Rachel Briggs, thank you. Now here's Emma Searle with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. The US military has launched airstrikes on two locations in eastern Syria used by Iran's Revolutionary Guards, signalling a new willingness in Washington to engage its forces directly in the crisis in the Middle East. US and coalition troops have been attacked at least 12 times in Iraq and four times in Syria since the conflict between Israel and Hamas began. China's former premier, Li Keqiang, has died suddenly from a heart attack at the age of 68, according to Chinese state media. Li was premier, the second highest position in China's political system, for a decade from 2013, until he was replaced by Li Qiang in March. And in Washington, D.C., the National Zoo's three celebrity giant pandas will be heading home earlier than expected. The zoo's exchange agreement with the Chinese government, originally brokered by President Richard Nixon 50 years ago, expires on December 7th. But ongoing negotiations to extend the agreement haven't produced results following deterioration diplomatic relations with the United States. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Emma. All this week, we've been hearing from various Arctic experts who sat down with the Foreign Desk team at this year's Arctic Circle Assembly in Iceland over the weekend. One of the key themes of this year's event is the state of Arctic environmental and geopolitical security amid the war in Ukraine. Among the attendees was Henry Burgess, head of the Natural Environment Research Council Arctic Office at the British Antarctic Survey. He sat down with Monocle's Andrew Muller, who began by asking if there is less conflict between science and politics in the region. There are 
kind of processes and organizations like the Arctic Council, mm. uh, with its focus on the sustainability and environmental protection in the Arctic, spend an enormous amount of effort and skill and goodwill in building up the science case for how you can best sustain and protect the, the Arctic. And those processes are have been heavily supported and were created ever since since 1996. There has been some difficulty in recent years because of the war in Ukraine and the fact that the Arctic Council hasn't been able to function in the way that it did in the past. But under the Norwegian chairship of the Arctic Council, they've just assumed that chairship, uh, there is hope that some of that project work, some of that environmental assessment, some of that protection work can still continue albeit in a slightly different a different format. And that is a really good way of getting facts and evidence about the Arctic, not just into the public mind, but into kind of the political consciousness and influencing decisions. Obviously, that uh, removal of Russia from the ongoing dialogues around the Arctic has been a topic of concern at this event. But from a, a scientific perspective, how, how big a gap in our understanding or in our, our ongoing knowledge of how things are changing does Russia no longer being involved leave? This reality kind of exists on a number of a number of levels. So Russia is, of course, half the Arctic. If you want to mm-hmm. st- understand permafrost change, if you want to understand methane change in the Arctic, then you need to understand what's happening in in Russia. And the loss of many countries' access to Russia, understandable as that is, is creating and will create lasting issues. At the same time, it's not the case that all data from Russia is is being lost to the system. So there are areas where Russia is connected into treaty systems, uh, UN processes, the World Meteorological Organization. So they're still reporting weather data, kind of positioning data and that kind of GPS data. Those things are still shared. So it it isn't the case that the tap has been completely turned off, Mm. but it is the case that the kind of connections and cooperations and research that happened particularly since the establishment of the International Arctic Science Committee uh, and the work of the Arctic Council are are dramatically scaled back and that is a real problem Uh, although everyone understands why that is um, there is a hope that at some point it will settle down and there will be the ability to re-establish some of these connections but it might settle down but it won't go back to how it was before so the, the task for those of us who are connected into international cooperation uh, in the UK and in the international science community is to find appropriate, wise, respectful ways of continuing some of that scientist-to-scientist engagement where we can in Russia, even if, for understandable reasons, it's not possible to cooperate at institutional or, or government level for the moment. Because you would have seen this in your role uh, at the Arctic Science Committee, and I am uh, interested in what it was like uh, before uh, Russia attacked Ukraine in, in February 2022. In, in, ter- in scientific matters concerning the Arctic, was, was Russia, for all its reputation abroad even before then, for being obstructive and difficult and truculent, uh, but was it actually a, you know, a useful and collegiate and open and transparent partner? Russia was a is a founding partner of the International Arctic Science Committee. Mm. It's from 1990. So this was this organisation was established before even the Arctic Council was was created. Uh, Russia has been an, an active participant in that in that science committee, uh, and uh, but it's not the case that the situation was perfect before February 2022. That would be a mischaracterisation. Mm. But there were extensive efforts from. Uh, other Arctic states and from non-Arctic states to build positive 
respectful cooperation with scientists in Russia and institutions. So, for example, there was a, um, an amazing uh, international expedition called the Mosaic Expedition, mm -hmm. which was uh, freezing in to the Arctic Ocean, uh, an enormous great big German icebreaker, the Polar Stern. And that was an enormous mission, and it was frozen in at the start of the winter. Uh, engines turned off, and it would then drift across the top of the Arctic Ocean. And that was genuinely international. It was a, a German vessel with lots of US support uh, that was supplied by Russian icebreakers during the mission to keep it all to keep it all going. These things are 10 years in the planning, but that kind of scale of cooperation was what we hoped was the beginning of a of a longer term kind of positive cooperation. Of course, those all those things are off the table, but we are looking forward in the future to other opportunities. So we have an international polar year coming up mm -hmm. in 2032-33, uh, and we hope that will offer some some useful opportunities. We have obviously been talking to a lot of people about how the, the, the politics around the Arctic are having to be recalibrated. Is that going to be the case, or is it already the case with the science that there's, there's talk among the scientific bodies of the Arctic nations about, well, how can we try to find a way to make up for what we now don't have? Yes, absolutely, because the reality is that many countries who have applied sanctions to Russia for understandable reasons are not able, are no, completely no longer able to fund science in, in Russia and fund science partnerships. So, so that exists, that is true, but the urgency of understanding the pace and depth of change in the Arctic remains. So yes, countries which had heavily invested in, in partnerships with, with Russia are now looking to reconfigure that to make sure that it won't be a direct analogue, but it will be a way of continuing to, to, to find out the information that we need. So if we can't access permafrost sites in Russia, if that data can't be shared, then where else can we access permafrost sites? If we can't understand the depth of change in Russia, it means it makes it even more important that we understand it in, in other places. Henry, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. The same stories, the same views dominate global news coverage. But The Globalist goes beyond the noise to unpack what's really happening, to find fresh perspectives and considered voices in current affairs, business and much more. She was doing this all on her own and I think that she's been a real inspiration to journalists around the world, particularly where there are tough areas of freedom of speech. I think that one of the mantras that's going to come out of Washington in the Biden administration going forward is unity, but unity with accountability. The Globalist, live every weekday at 8am Zurich time, 7am in London, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Let's get a roundup of some of today's business stories now with Ewan Potts from Bloomberg. Ewan, nice to have you back. Uh, firstly, a punchy reading from the world's biggest economy. Hi, Vincent. Yeah, I got a bit of a telling off uh, yesterday from Andrew for too much gloomy news. So I'm going to kick off today with something very positive from the US economy. The world's biggest economy grew at its fastest pace in nearly two years last quarter. This is the July, August, September quarter. The way they calculate data, economic data in the US is a little bit different to Europe. Uh, they roll it up to give it an annualized rate. And the annualized rate of growth in GDP in the US, 4.9%. That is uh, quite a number. It's double the pace that we saw in the second quarter. Uh, the economy's main growth engine was personal spending. You may think that the consumers in the US uh, have run out of uh, pandemic cash or are struggling with inflation. Of course, many of them are. But consumer spending is really holding up 
very firmly. It jumped by 4%. Again, that was the uh, biggest increase in consumer spending since 2021. Now, the world's uh, largest economy has uh, remained pretty steadfast in the, the uh, face of high pressure, high prices uh, and the rapid run-up in borrowing costs. There's been a lot of debate about uh, a soft landing. Many people say, oh, it'll be different this time. Uh, of course, the Fed has been raising rates very, very rapidly uh, to squeeze the economy. But so far, certainly in this quarter, it doesn't really feel like it is being squeezed very much. Interesting to dig down into just where the strength is coming from in uh, housing, in household demand. I think it's due to a mix of factors, really, including robust hiring, the uh, labor market still pretty solid in the US, and there have been quite punchy wage gains, which is feeding uh, into consumers' pockets as well, uh, and a record surge in household wealth as well as we uh, came into this year. Many economists do expect growth is going to slow down over the final months of this year uh, as borrowing costs start to limit some of the purchases of big ticket items. And also seeing a big jump in student loan payments. Of course, there was a, a moratorium uh, on those for much of the pandemic as well. So that is going to uh, come out of uh, some uh, younger US uh, pockets as, as we move through mm. into uh, next year. But growth looking pretty robust in the US at the moment. Yeah, I mean, that's a really high GDP figure for such an established economy. Now, you said that was good news, but that does also mean uh, that the Fed might keep uh, rates uh, as high as they are or even go higher, given the economy seems so robust. Yeah, of course, that is the negative side of the story. And when we get this uh, strong data from the US and other economies, it's often seen as a negative for investors because, as you say, it does uh, increase the risk uh, of a rate hike from the Federal Reserve. Now, the best guess of markets is that we're not going to get that uh, next time. We think that a lot of central banks around the world are done for now. There's been much debate about uh, whether rates will stay higher for longer, and that has become uh, broadly the consensus over the last few months that we're not going to suddenly see rates cut being cut uh, over the next few months. But I think interesting to look at the inflation picture in the US as well. Uh, and we've had data on core PC. This is uh, core inflation, excluding volatile food and energy costs. And that's gone down to 2.4% in the in the US now. So it does seem that inflation is moderating despite the strong growth figures. So uh, on the face of it, that is uh, very positive. Whether those trends will continue I think we need to watch that uh, as we the rest of the year com completes. Mm. Uh, and crossing the Atlantic now, trouble at British bank NatWest. What's bothering investors? Yeah, NatWest shares were down by as much as 18% this morning. That was the biggest drop since the day after the Brexit vote in 2016. They've recovered a bit of that ground now, but it's all to do with its margin guidance. So this is the gap between savings rates and loans rates and mortgage rates. This is how bank banks mostly make their money in the retail sector. Uh, and, and the bank says that its net interest margin will be 2.94%. That is lower than a year ago, and it is lower than the guidance. Now, this might sound a little bit dry, but this is really the gap between the savings rates we're offered uh, and what they charge us for mortgages and loans. Now, traditionally, rising interest rates are a very good thing for banks because when rates are very, very low, their margin is compressed. So the big increase in interest rates we've seen over the last few years has been good news for banks around the world. But interesting from NatWest today, and Barclays said a similar thing early this week as well, is that that margin is starting to get squeezed. Uh, and the reason is, is that customers are shopping around more and they are fixing their uh, savings 
at better rates, much more than they used to in the past. If you go back to the era of uh, interest rates being uh, near zero, hardly anybody was buying fixed rate savings products because uh, in short terms, the, you know, the, the rates were lousy. But now a lot of people are tying money away and NatWest and other banks have to offer uh, much greater rates. So their margin uh, is being squeezed. Mm. The CFO actually told reporters this morning that about uh, about a sixth, uh, one pound in every six uh, of savings at NatWest are now in fixed rate products. Uh, so that is good news for customers, but it's pretty bad news for the banks. Ewan, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Monocle's November issue offers a deep dive into the design industry, as well as our monthly global investigation of current affairs, business and culture. It's an issue that helps you see the details, gain focus. Here are three things that you'll discover between its covers. One, that the Czech Republic is packed with inspirational design outposts, both old and new. Second, that bustling Jakarta has become a hothouse of entrepreneurial prowess. Three, that there's nothing more valuable than sitting down with wise folk to gain their perspective on the world. In this issue alone, we meet with Raymo Ruffini, CEO of Montclair, architects Renzo Piano, Jeannie Gang and Shigur Raban, and the watch chiefs of Bulgari, Seiko and Van Cleef and Arpels. Discover all this and more in the latest issue of Monocle. Pick up a copy at your favourite newsstand or subscribe today at monocle.com slash subscribe. Finally today, if you're listening in the Northern Hemisphere, then it's definitely feeling autumnal now with the chilly nights drawing in. If you're not heading out to a Halloween party this weekend, then you might want to curl up with a good movie or streaming binge. And Ashanti Omkar, film, TV and culture commentator, joins us now with her recommendations. Ashanti, welcome. First up, if you're venturing out to the cinema, you're in for a long screening with Scorsese this weekend. That's absolutely right. It is It is a long runtime, three hours, 30 minutes. But I'll tell you one thing, it goes so quickly because of the way he has developed this fantastic screenplay, Killers of the Flower Moon. It is, a, you know, it's a crime drama. When you think about it, this is a true crime story. And the way he has delineated the, the genocide of the Osage Nation and, and the way he has taken these personal stories and brought them in, it is absolutely fantastic. I have to say that I would I would watch it again gladly. You know, even sitting at a cinema, just make sure that your bladder is empty before you go in. Leonardo DiCaprio brings, you know, brings an A-game Robert De Niro and Lily Gladstone, all, all three of them, plus the ensemble cast. It, it's fantastic. Down to down to a T of fantastic costumes and making sure that everything has been done very meticulously. And Scorsese and DiCaprio have teamed up a, a number of times. Do you think this partnership is getting stronger with each film? Absolutely. This one just feels to me like awards are going to come you're showering in for this one because you see them you know working together and i i was in in a conversation where scorsese was in the room and he was talking also about uh, dicaprio and it, it is wonderful to see how they've developed that that relationship and it really shows on screen absolutely you are spot on about that they're getting better and better together Also in cinemas this weekend is dance first a biographical film about the irish playwright samuel beckett 
Indeed, indeed. This one has Gabriel Byrne, who is a legend in his own right. And he actually plays, you know, two versions of himself because this is about, you know, Beckett speaking to Beckett about his own life. The way they've delineated this biographical film to show so many facets of the life of, of this Nobel Prize winning playwright is, is actually beautifully done. It's it's from, from Sky Cinema and you kind of see the two women in his life. You see his time, you know, as a fighter for the French resistance and you see his, you know, his friendship with James Joyce, which, um, which was one of his biggest kind of inspirations through time. And it is very beautifully made. And the, the cast here really brings an A-game to yeah. this. One of those casts, I noticed one of the women is played by uh, British actress Maxine Peake, who I think is always a standout in projects. So what's her role like? Her, her, her oh gosh, she she plays Barbara Bray in this one, and this is his. He had a translator called uh, called uh, you know Barbara, and uh, Maxine has you know again she she knows how to give you the facial expressions and and the intonations when she speaks that really brings that character to to full life and and totally she is always she's always brilliant in what she does, and this one this one too she gives us a brilliant role. Mm. And for those not wanting to venture out, there's a new adaptation adaptation from Apple TV. Yes, there is. This is a book adaptation from Bonnie Garmus's book, Lessons in Chemistry. This is a book that had a hundred rejections before it even got published. And it's really lovely that Apple TV have picked this up with Oscar winning Brie Larson helming Elizabeth Zott. This is a story of a chemist, a, a scientist who was so passionate about her work, but then she loses her job working at the lab. Lots of circumstances have happened to her. And she gets this job hosting a TV. TV show in the 60s and it's a cooking show because she's very scientific about her cooking and what she does is she starts in this supper at six show to educate housewives on on topics you know on lots of scientific topics and she becomes this kind of she's a maverick of her time she wears trousers on on television for example so she brings this this kind of visionary character to to the to the screen and I was completely riveted by this drama I can highly recommend it. Uh, and finally, a returning friend who we first met in a bar in Boston. Then he entertained us on a radio station in Seattle. But now he's back in Boston. It's Frasier. Is this reboot any good? It actually made me laugh so much. It's on Paramount Plus, And I actually went in quite sceptically because I thought, can they get that magic back? And of course, having the canned laughter, for example, is something we just don't see in pre- pre- prestige TV anymore. So that felt a little bit weird to have that. But they wanted to keep that feel for it. And without having Niles and Daphne, who were much beloved characters, it is kind of weird uh, in that sense, because it's like, oh, where are they? But They've put in a lot of new characters, for example, Miles and Daphne's son, and they've actually made this quite compelling. I laughed a lot. The jokes are still there. I would say that it's Kelsey Grammer who is bringing his Fraser Crane right back into the building. And he really, really, you know, he's here to reconnect with his son in the show. And, uh, you know, what I've seen of it so far has made me laugh a lot. I, I can highly recommend it, but I feel like it's a bit like Marmite 
People who've moved into new formats of television might not find this as compelling as they would find something like Lessons in Chemistry, for example. Well, you've preempted my next question because, you know, whilst uh, Frasier was a spin-off and it was, you know, named after the lead character, it was such an ensemble piece. You know, I- I'll always watch a, a re-showing of, of Frasier and I love the relationship between Niles and Daphne and how that changes, but also, you know, Martin and Roz. It was such a well-rounded cast. None of those other characters, though, coming back does it feel like they're missing at times? Definitely. I felt like they were missing a lot. But I'll tell you one one thing. Tox, uh, Ogondoye, she plays Olivia Finch in this. And Nicholas Lindhurst coming as Alan Cornwall. He's like a friend of Frasier's from college who is at Harvard now as a psychology professor. They are bringing an A-game to this that has actually helped that dynamic. And the younger characters that they brought in actually are quite compelling. So from that side of things, I though I do terribly miss miss our beloved Niles and Daphne. The fact that they're referred to during the show is a great thing. And I live in hope that they might reappear. And just final <laughs> question, and it might not have happened yet, but do you think it's interesting to shift it back to Boston because Frasier was about Frasier moving across the country to Seattle where he grew up, reconnecting with his own father. This show is about him moving back to Boston to reconnect with his son. So it flips that dynamic. But do you think we might also see some old Cheers cast popping up in this? I really hope so. This is what I'm going to say, because I am, obviously you sound like a fan like I was of the show, and I'm really hoping that they'll bring back a lot of that nostalgia with it. So far, we haven't seen much of that happening because they're still establishing these characters, especially with, you know, Freddie Crane, his son, you know, and he's a firefighter. To imagine Frasier having a son who's a firefighter, you know, just like how he was very snobbish towards his dad. It's really interesting that they're doing all of that now, but I am really hoping that we'll start seeing some some special special people coming in with those tossed salads and scrambled eggs. <laughs> well, you know, if he doesn't end up going to a certain place where everyone knows your name, I think they really have uh, missed a trick in that reboot. Uh, Ashanti Omkar, thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Tom Webb. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Steph Chonggu. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. Listener.